Genesis chapter 32 is where we are this morning. Genesis 32, beginning in verse 24, then Jacob was alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip which is on the socket of the thigh because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. It's an amazing story, a stunning revelation that took place, what, some 3,800 years ago and has immediate relevance to us right here, right now. But before we get into this, I gotta tell you, I gotta speak personally, I don't like the phrase, practice social distancing. I don't like it. I understand it, I get it, I accept the current need for it. I know why we're being told, practice social distancing, but I don't like it. I wanna go on record. I don't like it primarily because Jesus didn't do it. Mark chapter one, verse 30, let me just read this to you. It says, Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her and he came to her and he raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she waited on them. Or Mark chapter one, verse 40, let's get really intense. A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him saying, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Note that Jesus didn't wait to touch him until after he healed him, he touched him before he healed him while the leprosy was on his skin. We see this all over the place in Jesus' ministry. We see him touching the eyes of the blind. We see him touching the ears of the deaf, even the tongue of the mute. Man, that's just not good hygiene. And when some of his disciples were turning away, people, you know, sending them away, people trying to bring their kids to be blessed by Jesus, you may know what he did. Mark 10, 16 says, he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Well, wait a minute, germy fingers, snotty noses and all? And after his resurrection, Jesus had to tell Mary to stop clinging to him. She wasn't practicing social distancing. He said to Thomas that very night, John 20, verse 27, reach with your finger, see my hands, reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but 
believing. Following Jesus is by nature a contact faith. It's a hands-on lifestyle of rolling up our sleeves and getting into the mess of each other's lives. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now hear me clearly. For the sake of loving our neighbors responsibly, we gotta do it. We must practice social distancing. But for now, I gotta say I don't like it. We do it now, but we are all being reminded of something in this season, are we not? That everything in the human spirit desires intimacy and closeness and personal interaction. I found this to be true early on in this, this, this week. I, I walked into our kitchen area, our, our dining room, and I noticed on the kitchen table my daughter Naomi's desk pad calendar. You know, it's one of those wide calendars. You can write things on all the different days. She uses it for school to kind of keep up with homework and what she needs to be doing. And I looked down, and I saw on her calendar, March 16th, she had written, handwritten, first day of quarantine. March 17th, second day of quarantine. March 18th, third day of prison. March 19th, fourth day of losing my mind. <laughs> March 20th, fifth day of sanity. I pointed out to her, I said, don't you mean insanity? And she said, shh, the N is in here, dad. Fifth day of sanity, and, and next to sanity, she had written, help. March 21st, this was yesterday, sixth day of family crazy. This was all on her calendar. She's already pinned some things for next week, looking forward to it, I assume, including on one day, ah! And on another day, why? <laughs> and Wednesday night, we did our first live stream, and people were, were live chatting during the live stream. They should have been listening to the teaching. But they're live chatting, and you can just sense the longing for interaction and for connection for togetherness, a handshake, a warm embrace, a face to face. This morning we come to a story in which social distancing is tossed right out the window, in which Jacob gets a face to face unlike anyone in history. A story in which God gives him personal contact in a more tangible way than has ever happened before or since, or at least until Jesus came, before God became flesh and dwelled among us, before Emmanuel, God with us. But for Jacob, this, this personal interaction, this warm embrace was, well, it was much more than a warm embrace. It was the fight of his life. Let's back up a couple verses and walk our way into this. Verse 22 of Genesis 32 tells us that he, speaking of Jacob, arose that same night and took his two wives and his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Yabok. He took them and sent them across the stream and he sent across whatever he had. Now picture this, background. If you don't know the story, Jacob had fled from his skeevy uncle Laban Laban, who had had his hooks in Jacob for 20 years. And Jacob fled with his family and his flocks and his herds and everything that he had amassed over that time by the blessing of God. He no longer feared 
his uncle Laban. At this point, he got away from him, but now, now Jacob knows he's gonna have to face his offended brother Esau. He's en route, Esau is, with 400 men to meet Jacob, and Jacob is terrified. He feared Esau more than he had ever feared Uncle Laban. And so back in verses seven and eight of this same chapter, he divided his people and his flocks and his herds and his camels into two separate companies. He did this thinking if Esau attacks one, the other one can escape. And then he sent gifts of goats and rams and camels and cows and bulls and donkeys in droves, the Bible tells us, verses 13 through 21, one wave after another wave of droves of gifts for his brother Esau in an attempt, I hope, to appease him. Actually, that was kind of smart on Jacob's part. Proverbs 18, 16 says, a man's gift makes room for him. So Jacob is trying to make some room for himself with his brother Esau. Finally, Jacob then makes his wives, his children, and all, all that he owns, he, he takes them across this, this stream, across the, the Jabok or the Yabok River in verse 22. It's a wadi there in the Middle East, the wadi Yabok. And he sends them all across, and then he comes back to the other side, and some call it cowardly. Some say he was hiding behind his wives and kids, that, that his wives and kids were his final firewall between himself and the danger of Esau. I don't think so. In fact, the Bible's very clear that that is not what Jacob was doing. If you look at verse three of chapter 33, the next chapter, it says, but he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So ultimately, he will bypass his wives and kids and go before Esau. That's his intention. So why is he doing what he's doing? Why, before we even get to verse 24, does he take and send across the stream his wives and children and whatever he had? Why does he do this and then retreat back to this side of the stream on this particular night? The name of the stream may give us a hint. Again, it is the yabok in Hebrew, and yabok means emptying, emptying. This river perhaps was named that because it empties still today. It's the Yarnock River there in Jordan, and it still empties into the Jordan River. It's halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and it continues this day emptying in. So the river is called emptying, the Yabok. But I think what's happening here is that Jacob is emptying himself of all possessions and even of relationships. Why? To wait for God to wait for God. You know, he'd already prayed. He prayed a prayer of deliverance for his distress, in his distress. Back in verse nine through 12 of chapter 32, he said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray. How many people right now are praying that prayer? Deliver me. Deliver us from this pestilence. Deliver us 
from this pandemic, we would pray. Well, Jacob is saying, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. Jacob had prayed this prayer. And now he sends all ahead of him and he retreats to be alone by himself to wait for the response. I like that. I think sometimes we pray, but we don't wait for the response. We lift up prayers to God and then we go about our busyness. We go about our day or we sink back into our distress rather than waiting for the response. You know, the one who waits on the Lord will renew his strength. So Jacob is I believe in a holding pattern now. He's on this side of the Yabalk River. He's waiting for a response. And verse 24 says, then Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It's the only time that we find the word wrestled in the Bible right here and then repeated in verse 25. This word wrestled is interesting in the Hebrew. It's ya'abek. Ya'abek, which means literally to get down in the dust, to grapple, to get dirty. The, the implication is rolling around in the dust, which is why it's translated wrestling. To roll in the dust to ya'abek, ya'abek. And that's interesting to me because what we discover here in the Hebrew is a three-way wordplay going on. Ya'abek, ya'bok. Yaakov, Yaabek, to wrestle, Yabok, emptying, Yaakov, Jacob. Wrestling, emptying, Jacob. This is what's going on. Jacob, as he is being sanctified in his life, is being emptied of himself that he might be full of the Lord. Wrestling, emptying, Jacob. There's a reason beyond these definitions and translations that I like to point out these, these words, Yabek, Yabok, Yaakov. When we take these in, when we recognize the overwhelming, illuminating wordsmithing of the Bible, and then we add in the absolute precision of prophecy, we can only come to one intelligent conclusion, and that is, this is the word of God. This is God's word to humanity. God spoken, God inspired, and it is a breathtaking word. If you've never studied through the Bible, if you've never made your way through the scriptures, this book is unparalleled. And of course it should be. It's the word of God. Of course it should be unlike any other, any writing or book of man, because it's the one that comes from God himself. Which, by the way, brings me to the identification of Jacob's covert combatant, this Wonderful wrestler. A man, it says, wrestled with him until daybreak. Many Jews refer to this man as a generic divine being, an athletic rep for God, you might say, but not God. Many of the Jewish people, and I say this with respect, rabbis say that he was Esau's guardian angel, that that's who Jacob was wrestling with. If you're into the Jewish Kabbalah, which is that Jewish mysticism, there's a book in the Kabbalah, I think it's the main book of the Kabbalah called the Zohar, 
and it actually names this angel Samael, what we see is anything to avoid true recognition of who this man really was. Kidner in his commentary says, the identity of Jacob's assailant emerges only gradually and Jacob is quick to seize every clue to it. And I encourage you to do the same thing. Because what happens here as this wrestling match begins with a man, as the story unfolds before us, verse by verse by verse, it becomes more and more clear exactly who it is that is grappling with Jacob on the dust of the ground. Without question, and I believe I can show this to you, this must be God in the flesh. For one thing, while some English translations of the Jewish Bible try to translate God, which is the word Elohim, in verses 28 and 30, they try to translate it as beings divine. Beings divine. Hosea very neatly clears it up for us. We've seen this passage recently, but listen to it again. Hosea chapter 12, verse 3, where the prophet writes, in the womb he took his brother by the heel, that is Jacob. And in his maturity, he contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Why does it say angel? Angel is malach. Angel means messenger. So the malach of God, the messenger of God, which I believe and have taught, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Pre-incarnate Jesus before his first coming. Jesus arriving on the scene, God in the flesh. Well, how do you know that? Listen further. He wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. He who? Verse five, even Yahweh, the God of hosts. Yahweh is his name. The Lord, the Lord God is the wrestler. Hosea clears it up right there. We hear from the prophet. It was God who showed up. It's God who wrestled here with Jacob. As he's left alone, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. It was the God-man, God in human flesh. Verse 25, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh, so the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. I'll give this to Jacob if that was me in the wrestling match, I would have called foul, you know. Wait, hang on, hang on. We have a dislocated thigh here, medic. But what we see Jacob do is continue to fight on. Jacob's tenacious. He will not let go. His, his hip is out of joint and he's hanging on. He won't stop the match. He refuses to accept the count. He doesn't listen to the bell. He will not give up the fight in spite of this dislocated hip, he just holds on. But wait, if this is God, are you telling me that he couldn't prevail against a mere man? People read that and they think that's, that's a strange thing, that he couldn't prevail, so he had to touch his hip to dislocate him? If this is God, couldn't he prevail? Not without killing Jacob, and I think that's the point. Jacob would not give up no matter what the God-man was doing as they wrestled, as they struggled. And so, honestly, tenderly, God touched him. The word touched here, 
after having just said tenderly, <laughs> the word touched is yigah, which means to smite or to strike violently. But there's a tenderness in the striking violently that I think you'll understand before we're done. Verse 26, then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, that is Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Jacob's always looking for the blessing. He's always desirous of the blessing, isn't he? Well, I think Jacob is already beginning to realize something here. Again, Hosea tells us that as Jacob wrestled, as he's in this lock with this man through the night, Hosea chapter 12, verse four says, he wept and sought his favor. He wept and sought his favor. Something else about Jacob that cracks me up is he's crying all over the place. He met Rachel and began weeping, which is, as we said, not something that you do on a first date. Now he's in a wrestling match and he's weeping. I don't think you would see that on a high school mat. But Jacob is weeping. He sought his favor, Hosea says. That literally translated is, he made supplication. And that tells us so much. You see, he was wrestling and he was praying. He was wrestling and weeping. He was praying and crying out and he would not let go until he got the answer. Hold that thought, verse 27. So he said to him, that is the man, the God man. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Why does he ask his name? Wouldn't God know if in fact, pastor, as you're telling us that this is God, wouldn't God know exactly who he was wrestling? And therefore, wouldn't he know his name? Of course he did. So why does he ask? I think that the Lord was recalling Jacob to another time. 20 years before when another father asked for his identification. Genesis 27, 18, he came to his father and he said, my father, and he, that is Isaac, said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. Now as he wrestles with this man, this God man through the night, the Lord asked him, he says, what is your name? Why is he asking? Because the Lord would not, as Isaac did, bless Jacob under false pretenses. He was not gonna bless him under a phony ID. He would bless Jacob as Jacob. Who are you? Jacob, he says. And this time around, as Jacob owns his own name, God gives him a new name, verse 28. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob but Yisrael, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is a name change that would forever change how Jacob and his descendants, not to mention the world, could see God. Let me say that again and pay attention. This is a name change that would forever change how we can see God, how we may see God. You see, there are two possible translations for the name Israel. Israel, the, the, the nation that we see today. Israel, the people over history and time. Israel, the man who started it all. 
Israel can either be translated Israel, Israel, the Hebrew words that are put together to mean Prince of God, or in this case, Yisrael. Yisrael, which translates struggle with God. Struggle with God. Why would God name or rename Jacob, not to mention his people in perpetuity, struggle with God? It's the perfect name, isn't it? What other people has struggled more with God throughout all history? And I say this with admiration, but if there's ever been a people who have struggled as a people with God, it's Israel, Israel. The people who struggle with God. Dennis Prager, himself a practicing Jew, a brilliant man, he paraphrases Holocaust survivor and Nobel laureate Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel wrote a book, if you haven't ever read Night, it's about an 85, 90-page book about the Holocaust, perhaps the best that's ever been written. I highly recommend it, Elie Wiesel's Night. But he quotes him as saying, Elie Wiesel said, a Jew can love God or fight with God, but he cannot ignore God. Struggle with God. Israel, that's your new name, And verse 29, then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. Jacob's beginning to clue in. But the wrestler responds implicitly, why do you ask? Why do you ask? As if to say, think about it. Think about it. Who do you think I am? Jesus would later say, who do you say? I am. After that, Philip would say to him, Lord, show us the Father, it's enough for us, John 14, verse eight. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? Think about it, why do you ask my name? Who do you say that I am? He who has seen me has seen the Father. What's your name, Jacob says. It reminds me of Samson's father, a man by the name of Manoah. He would also come face to face with God, with the visible God, in Judges chapter 13. Verse 17 says, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord, again, the Malach Yahweh, which we find to be this name for God in the flesh, for the pre-incarnate Jesus. The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is Wonderful, wonderful. Note this, wonderful, it is the word Pele in the Hebrew. Wonderful. Isaiah would later use the same word. Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, and his name will be called Pele. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. In case anyone's wondering who is truly wonderful, Pele, that word is only used to describe the word, the work, and the person of God in the Bible. Pele is never used to describe a human being. It only describes God. And so the angel of the Lord, when asked what his name is, says, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. It is the same wonderful one now that Jacob says, what's your name? Please tell me your name. Why is it that you ask my name, he says. 
and then he blessed him there. That is, God blessed Israel. Verse 30, so Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Peniel, another Hebrew word, means face of God. I've seen the face of God, and my life has been preserved, so he names it Peniel. What does the Bible say about seeing God? This seems almost an impossibility. We read this, Jacob says, I've seen the face of God. Jacob has no question as to who he saw, as to who the wonderful wrestler truly was. Jacob knows, but how's this possible? Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. And here in another place, God says, no man can see me and live. Oh, it's a contradiction, the critic would say. Not at all, not at all. How did Jacob see the face of God and live if God says it can't be done? Some suggest it's because he wrestled through the dim night, that as long as it was night, that it was okay, and that for Jacob's protection, the Lord actually left at sunrise. In fact, he even says up in verse 26, let me go for the dawn is breaking. So perhaps that was part of it. He wanted to get out of there before the light dawned and Jacob could really see him and then he would just die. It's an interesting theory, but more wonderfully than that, God made a way to bridge the gap, to get beyond the social distance, to come face to face with us so we could know him, even touch and be touched by him, John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And John one, four says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And John one, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. God put on flesh so that man could look at God and not die so that we could have face-to-face with God and not lose life, so that we could see God in the flesh and prevail. And so I believe that that is what's going on here. The man wrestling with Jacob, the visible God, the God-man is none other than Jesus, and he was able to wrestle with him, even to see him face-to-face, because that's how God made a way, that we could see him and come close to him. But we gotta stop for a moment this morning and ask the obvious question. Why this method of contact? What is going on here? And if we can attempt for a moment to understand the mind of God, why would he do what he did in this way? Why does he show up to fight hand-to-hand, face-to-face with Jacob, literally to grapple in the dust. Why why would he do that? How about setting up a card table, you know, with maybe some milk and cookies and sit across from the table and let's have conversation. 
He shows up to wrestle in the dust. It's mind-blowing. Why? Why does God meet Jacob this way? I want to share something really personal with you, and it's a question that I was asked by my son Christopher. Christopher, who is not home yet. Christopher, if you're with us for the first time at the bridge, you, you may not know this, that Cheryl and I are adopting a, a young man. He's 13 years old. He's in Ghana, Africa right now, and we're adopting him. We're trying to get him home. We've been working on this now for coming up on two years. June will be two years that we've been in this process. And even now, while we have been given some release for Cheryl to, to go and to have the bonding time that's required with Christopher, now the borders of Ghana are closed because of coronavirus 19. So I'm talking to Christopher this last week, and he had some Bible questions for me, which he often does. And this time he asked, Dad, why, listen, why does God ask me to fight when he doesn't fight for me? 13 years old. Why does God ask me to fight when he doesn't fight for me? You ever feel that way? You ever feel like you're being called upon to hang in there, persevere, have faith? But where's God? He asked me to fight. Why doesn't he fight? God, you tell me to fight. Where are you in the midst of my battles? It's just as Jacob wept in the, flight, in the fight, he's clinging to the God man. He's crying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob is in the fight of his life. And if you've ever been there, in that place of wondering, why am I asked to fight, but he doesn't fight? Why does he say I should stand for him, but I don't feel like he stands for me? Why does he call on me to prevail when I don't see him in this? Where are you, God? If you've ever asked questions like that, you and Christopher are in very good company. David asked the same thing. I'm talking about King David. I also have a son, David. But King David, Psalm 10, verse one, says, why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? People are asking that right now. Psalm 13, verse one, David said, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And David's not the only one. Psalm 44, verse 23, the sons of Korah write, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep? O Lord, awake. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and even our oppression? In Psalm 77, verse seven, Asaph writes, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never be favorable again? Has his loving kindness ceased forever? Has his promise come to an end forever? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Or has he in anger withdrawn his compassion? Why would God allow such questions to be recorded in his holy book? I know of no other book that allows the people to voice questions of doubt and, and fear and worry and isolation. And yet in the Bible, here it is in these Psalms and in others where, where the word is, is bringing up this, this struggle in the human heart. Why would God allow such struggles to be collected here? Listen, when we say 
Where are you in the fight? He's the one with whom we're wrestling. Where are you, God? You're struggling with God right then. Why won't you bless me? You're struggling with God in the moment. He is the one with whom we're wrestling. He invites the struggle. In fact, he initiates our wrestling with him. Why? Acts chapter 17, verse 27, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Here's my point. We are in the fight of our lives. We're in the fight of our lives, and it's not with this novel coronavirus. We are in the fight of our lives with God himself. All the psalmist questions and doubts and struggles are set in gleaming stark contrast with what God has done. He wants you to struggle with him. Why? So we might see him, come face to face with him, and in the struggle begin to realize who it is that we're fighting, who it is that we are face to face with. And in fact, Take every wrestling that you've ever gone through, every struggle, every doubt, set it against the deep, stark contrast of the cross of Jesus Christ. And what does your struggle look like then? What does our pain look like by comparison? What do our heartaches look like with the backdrop of Jesus at Calvary? Set the cross against every struggle you've ever had and you will see what your struggles amount to. You'll see what they look like. Tragically, some people like to play the victim and so they will boast even in their struggles. But Paul says in Galatians 6.14, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Man, don't boast in wrestling in your faith. Trust in the Lord. Wrestle on. Listen, and I say this directly to Christopher. Why does God ask you to fight when he doesn't fight for you, Christopher? Hey, he fought to the death for you. He is currently fighting for you, and he fights for you for me by allowing us to wrestle with him. It is the fight of our lives because it's the one fight that matters. It's the one fight where the assailant is actually the one who is fighting for you to prevail. God entered into the fight with Jacob, wanting Jacob to prevail, needing to bring Jacob to that point of overcoming his fear and his foolishness as a man to trust completely in the living God. And so he invites us to wrestle. He invites us to come to the fight. He is willing, though he is the high and lofty one, Isaiah tells us, he also comes to the lowly and contrite, even to the point of wrestling in the dust. God wrestling with the dust of man and woman that we might prevail, that we might overcome. By the way, that's what makes faith authentic. It's not sitting back in pews and being all religious. The wrestling is what makes relationships real. Think about it. Is there anyone that you're in a relationship with that you haven't struggled with at some point? I mean, kids struggle with parents. 
right? Siblings struggle with one another. Husbands and wives struggle. Friends struggle. That's what makes the relationship real. Why should it be any different with God? This is not church. This is not religion. This is a relationship that he invites you to come into and to struggle through together. And the only reason why it's ever different with God is when we practice social distancing. When we keep God at arm's length. When we make that relationship impersonal or detached or indifferent. Well then, there's no relationship at all. Elie Weisel said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. The opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. Wrestling with God, it requires that I get close to him, really close to him, close enough to touch, close enough to hold on to, close enough even to get my hemp wrenched out of the socket if that's what I need to trust him. You might say, well, that doesn't sound very peacefully religious. It's not, and it's not intended to be. But I'll tell you what, I for one would rather walk with a limp the entire journey of my life that I might know God. I'd rather have a crutch. Weisel said, I have not lost faith in God. I have moments of anger and protest. Sometimes I've been closer to him for that reason. The child struggling the husband and wife wrestling through the tough issues, the person who wrestles with the Lord. Boy, this puts a different perspective on Paul's words when he says, 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight of faith. I've always thought of the fight of faith as me going out there and fighting the world. That's not it. The fight of faith is the fight that faith might come to take hold, he says, of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Hey, it's one thing to say, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. It's another thing to struggle with that. It's another thing to wrestle through the faith. Your lifetime, so that at the end of life, you can, like Paul, say, 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Listen, I've never seen this this way before. This is one of my favorite verses, that there's a crown of righteousness, a crown of righteousness for all who have loved his appearing. I've always thought about that being the appearing of Jesus in his second coming, and I believe it is. But I also believe that the crown of righteousness is for those who love when Jesus shows up, who love his appearing right now. It's not just his appearing then, it's his appearing now. Those who love to struggle with Jesus, who love to wrestle with the word of God, who love to lay faith before God and even with weeping to pray and to cry out and to cling to the Lord until he bless you. God wants you that close. Verse 28 again, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have 
prevailed. How did Jacob prevail when he ends up limping out of this wrestling match? He prevailed by refusing to let go. He overcame because he would not give up. He held on, he prayed on, and he even wept on for the blessing, and he got it. When you find that you're wrestling with God, don't let go. Hold on tight. Persevere. That is what he wants. He even says in Revelation 2.17, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, I will give him a white stone, and listen, and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. God has invited you and me to come wrestle for the new name just as Jacob wrestled for his new name. Verse 31 Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. You know what that means for Jacob? (laughs) No way to run now. He's not gonna be able to run from Esau or any other fear. He's not gonna be able to take off even though both of his companies be destroyed by Esau in an attack. Jacob could have fled before. He can't flee now. He's got a limp. He's gonna move slowly for the rest of his life. Gonna have to rely on the wonderful wrestler. Christianity, my friends, isn't just a crutch, as the old taunt goes. It's leaning on the power of Christ with every limping step. It's only when we come out of the wrestling match limping that we recognize how lame we really were without God and how much we need Jesus to get through this life and on to the next. Verse 32, therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. By the way, the fact that Jacob came out of this with his hip dislocated and a lifelong limp proves beyond question this was no ecstatic vision or dream. This was reality. This actually happened. He didn't just dream a vision of God as he had before. No, this time it was face-to-face. It was hand-to-hand combat. And Jacob prevailed. It's interesting. They don't eat the sinew of the hip. What does that mean? Kosher butchers today, Jewish kosher, kosher butchers, will remove the sciatic nerve from all meat. That is standard operating procedure, and it has been for 3,800 years. Why? Why do they do such a thing? They do it to preserve the memory of the injury. You see, to the the Jewish mindset, memory is a big deal. They remember through Passover. They remember through the feast. They remember on Shabbat, Sabbath, every week. So much of the pictures and stories, true life histories of Torah, of the Hebrew scriptures are about memory. And so they continue to this day not to eat of the sinew of the hip to remember the injury. Listen, to remember the injury. Is there a pain? Is there a wound? Is there a memory that is still with you? Praise God. Thank God for it if it causes you to lean into him more, 
Thank God that he came so close so as to injure you to remember him with every step. So Jacob emerges from this night with a new name, Israel. He limps across the Yabok the next morning. He is emptied of himself. He's full of faith, having seen the face of God, and that's what wrestling with God does. It allows us to see the face of God and to fall deeper in love with him. I'm gonna leave you with one last thought this morning. A wise friend said to me just this last week, didn't want me to tell you who he was, so I won't tell you. He shares a name with the main character in the story, but I won't tell you any more than that. He said this, right before Jacob was to come back into the land of promise, he has this one final sanctifying moment. I gotta say that again if you missed it. Right before Jacob was to come back into the promised land, he had this one final sanctifying moment. That struck me. I wanna ask you this morning, what if this is ours? What if what's happening in the world right now is our final sanctifying moment? What if this is it? Why do we assume that we're just gonna roll along Sunday to Wednesday to Sunday, steady and unchanging until we're caught up to be with Jesus? Why do we think that? He didn't say it would be that way. Matthew 24, Jesus described global pain that he referred to as birth pangs or labor pains, which we know increase with frequency and intensity. We should expect what's going on right now. This should not be a surprise to us. Several large earthquakes that have just been happening this week, famines that are taking place, a locust swarm in the Middle East. We've got all these things going on. Why are we surprised? And what if, I'm just saying, what if we are in our final sanctifying struggle? I know some will hear me say that and go, oh no, oh no, no, this can't be it, this can't be the end. Please listen, I'm not saying this to frighten anyone or to worry anyone. In fact, Revelation 21 verse four says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. Well, that sounds good. There will no longer be any mourning. I could use that. No crying, no pain. The first things have passed away. What is coming, what is promised out ahead of us is all good. It's all blessing. It's all joy. It's all peace. That's what's coming. So to say we might be at the end of this age, Man, bring it on. Bring it on, Lord. If you are nervous at that, let me just say again, I am not prophesying that this is the end, at least of the age, although I do think we're very close. What I'm saying is now is the time more than ever before to wrestle with God for faith. Now's the time to take God seriously. Now is the time to hold on, even if that means we must come limping into the kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, I wanna pray right now for my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, who might be listening to this live stream. And as I pray, what I wanna ask first and foremost, Lord, is that you will evoke faith in our lives. 
that you will bring us more deeply into the struggle than ever before. Father, rather than ignoring or avoiding wrestling with faith, I pray that we would be in the midst of the struggle, that we would recognize, as you so clearly show us, that you don't send us off to wrestle alone, but that you fight for us, even if you are fighting with us. It's that we would prevail. Father, I needed to hear this message. I needed to, needed to be reminded, Lord, that you do fight for your people. Even to the point of fighting with us, if that will bring faith. And so that's what I'm asking, Lord. If someone needs to be in the fight of their life with you right now, that faith would emerge and prevail, I pray that you would bring the fight. If someone needs the comfort, Lord, of knowing that you are fighting for them, Lord, would you reveal that? Now, Father, if someone is sitting listening to this right now and they have never received Jesus Christ as Lord, I pray that this would be the moment. In fact, I'm gonna tell you right now, if you've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've never trusted him with your life, I invite you right now to drop to your knees in your living room and pray to the Lord. And very simply ask him, and I'll pray with you, Lord Jesus, I need you. Because Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. Lord Jesus, I've been fearful and fighting all kinds of things in my life. And I'm finally here where I know that I need you. Lord, I don't wanna be afraid anymore. So I pray, would you right now come into my life Enter, Lord, my heart. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Redeem me and bring me near to you. I cry out with what little faith I have. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this morning I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Oh God, come fight for me. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.